and welcome to this episode of Talking Migration. I'm Clara Sunderland and Talking Migration is supported by the Centre for Research in the Social Sciences at the University of Huddersfield. In this episode, we'll be discussing the role of immigration in leading up to and the aftermath of Brexit with Robert Ford, Professor of Political Science at Manchester University and co-author of the book Revolt on the Right, Explaining Support for the Radical Right in Britain. And Kenan Malik, writer, lecturer, broadcaster and author of numerous books, for example, Multiculturalism and Its Discontents and From Fatwa to Jihad. We'll also be talking to Nando Sigona, senior lecturer at the University of Birmingham and co-author of the book Sans Papiers, The Social and Economic Lives of Undocumented Migrants. It's still not clear what the decision of the British public to leave the European Union will actually mean for future EU migration to and from the UK. It is clear, however, that the issue of immigration played a prominent role in the campaign. So I started by asking Kenan Malik whether he thinks that Brexit can actually be described as a referendum on immigration. Well, immigration clearly played a role um, in the referendum, but I wouldn't call it a a referendum on immigration. First, because you know, even for those voters for whom immigration was an important issue, other issues were often as important, if not more so. You know, Lord Ashcroft's post-vote poll, um, it was conducted on the day of the referendum, but after people had voted. And that suggested that sovereignty, for instance, was more important than immigration to mostly voters. And the latest British Social Attitude Survey um, which was taken at the end of last year, I think. Um, but it's also it's interesting in this because it showed little difference between those of, um, with high levels of education and those with few qualifications in terms of whether they thought um, a potential Brexit would reduce immigration. And those with higher edu- education levels were, in fact, more likely to think that Brexit would reduce immigration than those with less education. But a much greater proportion of those with few qualifications thought that the economy would be better off after Brexit um, than did those with more qualifications. And I suppose one way to read that is that it was less the issue of immigration that made um, the poor or the unqualified more likely to vote leave, but rather a sense that Brexit might just bring about an economic change for the better for those who feel at the bottom of the economic mile. So, so I think that immigration played a role, but I wouldn't, you know, it's not that there are other issues that were as if not more important than immigration. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that, uh, um, Rob? Yeah, I, I, I agree with the broad conclusion that it wasn't just uh, uh, about uh, an immigration vote and it wasn't an immigration referendum. Um, I guess my take on it would be slightly different, um, which is I do think one of the reasons we ended up with Brexit is because immigration now looms larger in voters' minds and for Leave voters is now more connected with the European Union than it used to be. Uh, There's some nice work been done by Jeff Evans and John Mellon uh, at Oxford University uh, about this, which shows that the correlation between people's views of the European Union and their views about immigration um, basically massively increased in strength after 2004 uh, through to 2014 to the point where um, if you asked them what they thought about immigration you would then 
it was almost an identity relationship. You almost you, you could read straight across what their views of the EU would be, which was completely different to, to, to the situation in the seventy five referendum when the voters who were most anxious about immigration were actually more pro EU at that point. So clearly, um, people who dislike immigration were overwhelmingly Eurosceptic uh, uh, and very strongly Brexit-oriented in this vote that we've just had. And that, that was a big nucleus of support for Leave. However, I don't think it would have been possible for Leave to win with those voters alone. And that's why it wasn't just a vote about immigration. The arguments about sovereignty um, and the economy and so on were also vital um, and I think what happened that got us to 52% is as Keenan put it um, the voters who were at the bottom of the scale the voters I've in various writings called the left behind voters basically became convinced that they had nothing to lose by voting leave but in a sense even if the economic arguments were ones they, they weren't entirely convinced by they were willing to buy that lottery ticket they weren't being offered a convincing enough case that the status quo which has not benefited them for many years was going to benefit them so why not gamble on the alternative that that was essentially the boris pitch why not gamble on the sunlit uplands and so on and so forth and that argument i think potentially was the decisive one rather than the immigration one but we wouldn't have been in a position where that argument could be decisive if it wasn't for that base of support from immigration skeptics i agree with, with, with that bit uh, but it's also worth noting the difference i think between um the impact of immigration and the perception of the impact of immigration because i think there's a there's a there's a difference here so um you know, the pro-Brexit vote, and indeed the, the UKIP vote of the last election, was not with one or two exceptions, such as Boston in Lincolnshire, correlated with areas of high migration. Um, nor is perception of high migration and of the negative impact of immigration correlated with high levels of migrants. But support for UKIP and for Brexit is correlated with perceptions of high levels of immigration. So immigration, you know, has become symbolic of unacceptable change and of a, a world that feels out of control, which is why the Leave slogan, you know, let's take back control, had resonance among certain sections of the electorate. Uh, I know lots of Remain supporters derided it as hollow and meaningless, but for many sections of, of working class voters, for whom the world does seem to have been changed upside down by you know forces they cannot shape. It was a it was a sentiment that resonated deeply, and in that sense, I think both hostility to immigration, hostility to the EU, to EU have become expressions of a world that's gone out of one's control. I'd I'd, I'd like to furiously agree with that. <laughs> uh, I think Keenan's put it tremendously well. It's not the actual direct impact of immigration, and this is something that the more technocratic types who work on this issue keep missing. It's not actually about um, polls taking school places or queuing up at the GPs. It's about what immigration comes to symbolise. And ironically enough, the reaction from sort of left liberal Remainers the day after um, the vote to leave it kind of crystallized this for me because there were so many people feeling deeply and emotionally upset that um, a massive dramatic social change that was out of their control had been imposed upon them by voters who did not share their outlook on life and did not share their values. And I remember saying at the time, congratulations, Remain voters, now you know how UKIP voters feel. 
because that's exactly how they feel about the social changes of the past 15 to 20 years. They feel that these are changes that have been imposed from without, that they have no control over, that they have consistently expressed their opposition to, and that they have not been listened to at all over, um, because the people who are actually making the decisions and running the show don't think like them uh, and don't share uh, their values and priorities. Um, so I think immigration has become very symbolic and has helped to crystallise that much deeper social division um, that we now have to wrestle with post-Brexit. But part of the problem, I think, we have in, in dealing with this is that the reasons for the, the, ele the electorate, sections of the electorate feeling dispossessed, voiceless, marginalised are economic and social, um, the decline of manufacturing industry, the crumbling of the welfare state, austerity, atomization of society, inequality, and so on. And partly political, the, you know, the transformation of the Labour parties, move away from its traditional constituencies, the erosion of trade union power, and so on. But many have come to see it primarily as a kind of cultural loss. Um, and that um, the, the, you know, cultures become increasingly important as a means through which to make sense of our place in society and, and, and social relations. And as economic and political change has become perceived as cultural loss, so those regarded as culturally different have come to be viewed as threats. And, and that, I think, it underlies that the growing hostility to, to immigration because you know, immigration um, has, come, has become the means through which, um, you know, what Rob referred to as the left behind me, I dislike the term, but it's become common currency now. Sorry. It's, it's, it's the way that, you know, they perceive their loss of social status. And, and I say the difficulty, I think, is that, you, can't, you know, you can't deal with, with, with that sense of um, hostility to immigration by dealing with immigration itself because it's a much deeper issue. Um, and that's the problem, I think, that we now face. So that's something I was going to ask is what does this kind of mean for what kind of immigration policy that is perhaps necessary or that's possible to 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 um to have now in in the in this kind of environment so do you need to tighten immigration to respond to this public opinion or if it's only about perceptions about symbolism then um as Keenan just suggested is that is that futile well i I suspect it is to some extent futile in the sense that I think that the underlying drivers of a lot of this concern that gets expressed about immigration policy won't go away even with tighter immigration policy. Uh, if you look across Western Europe, there's, there's not much of a correlation, for example, between immigration levels um, and radical right support. Um, and that's what we're going to be looking at particularly is the sort of radical right, the UKIP type electorate. So it doesn't seem likely that if you bring the number, you, you may take the edge off it, you may take the salience of it down, take the heat of the discussion down a few notches, but you don't resolve the underlying uh, problems, I think, that way. Is that view? I agree. I mean, I, 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 I'd say, that I'd go further and say, um, the more you try and restrict immigration, um, and the more that such restrictions fail to solve those underlying problems, you know, jobs, housing, whatever, we're talking about the sense of marginalisation, political marginalisation, sense of voicelessness. The more that restrictions on immigration fail to solve those problems, they will fail to solve them because they're not responsible for those problems, then the more that sense of disaffection will grow. So um, it, it is futile in that sense. At the same time, 
I think it's, you know, I am for more liberal immigration policy, but you can't have more liberal immigration policy without popular support for such policy. And I think the dilemma we face is this, that on the one hand, any moral and workable immigration policy seems to me, at least for the moment, not to possess a, a democratic mandate. But on the other hand, any policy that has popular support is likely to be immoral, immoral or unworkable. And that dilemma exists not because you know, the public are drawn to immoral or unworkable policies. There's no iron law that says the public must be irrevocably hostile to immigration. But they've become hostile because they've come to associate immigration with unacceptable change. And that's partly, at least, because of the way that immigration has been framed by politicians right across the political spectrum over the past 30 years. You know, on the one hand, politicians have recognised the need for immigration. On the other hand, they've promoted the idea of immigration as a problem that must be dealt with. And at the same time, they've shown great disdain for the views of ordinary work-class voters who... Um, many politicians, regardless, racist and incapable of adopting a rational view of immigration. You know, Gordon Brown's, that description of, of um, Gillian Duffy, I think it was, of the, of the 2010 election as a bigoted woman because of her worries about East European migrants, captured, well, I think the contempt of, of many politicians for, you know, what they see as little people's immigration concerns. And I think it's this poisonous mix of necessity fear and contempt that's helped both to stigmatise migrants and to create that hostility towards the, the elite for ignoring popular views on immigration. I, I, and it's a, it's a very difficult knot to unpick. I, I think I'm slightly more optimist, optimistic than Keenan that, that some elements of this knot can be unpicked, in particular because... I share his view that a big part of the problem is the way that politicians have framed this issue as simultaneously this is a, an economic benefit for our country so stop complaining about it and we will control this because you're all worried about, about it. The problem with both framings is that they treat immigration as a single aggregate mass um, and what I've found in a large bunch of data that I've gathered over a number of years now is that the public don't view immigration as uh, or immigrants as a single undifferentiated mass. And there's very clear differences in how they view different parts of the issue. The problem is that policy and politics hasn't treated it in that way. So, for example, we can resolve the issue on, for example, student migration. That is not regarded as a problem by the public. We can resolve, to a large extent, the issue on labour market migration if we are willing to shut the door to unskilled migrants um, full stop, because that's what the public want. And that comes up against the issue of workability and morality. But the solution in terms of public opinion in that area is, is at least conceivable. Where we come up against more difficulty um, and much harder trade-offs is family reunion and refugees because here what the public seem to want does look both immoral and unworkable. Uh, the public don't like the idea of allowing families to reunite. That's a problem because it's not 
a very morally comfortable position for any policymaker to say to people, you can't bring your wife and kids, you can't have a family as a whole. It's a very difficult position, for example, for a social conservative such as Theresa May to try uh, and adopt. It, it runs very much against the grain of a long tradition in small-c conservatism of valuing the family. And with refugees, again, you know, the public say they favour the principle of asylum, but at the same time they are strongly opposed to essentially any number of asylum seekers coming in, um, almost monolithically so. And so there again we have a situation where if politicians want to do the right thing, uh, either in moral terms or even in policy terms, just technocratic terms, there are obvious reasons why Britain would want to be part of international efforts to resolve refugee crises, um, then they have to run against public opinion in those areas. So the issue we have is that there are soluble problems in immigration, uh, on student migration, on labour migration, but the solutions are sometimes not easy. And then there are insoluble problems on immigration, um, in, for example, family reunion and refugees, where essentially whatever we do, um, we fail in some way. Um, we either fail morally, or we fail politically, or we fail technocratically in terms of we have bad policy. But I also see, when Rob talks about... Um, soluble problems, um, for instance, shutting the door on unschooled migration. Even if we were able to do that and shut the door totally on unschooled migration, um, it will not solve the, those, the underlying sense of disaffection that people feel. Um, having no unschooled migrants come to Britain will not make um, the, those who feel marginalised Left feel less marginalised. I don't think. See, the problem I have is that I don't think there are any quick fixes um, because the migrant crisis is it's a long-standing one. When we talk about you know, the migration crisis in the European context, we've been talking about it for two or three years. But in a sense, that migration crisis goes back to the early nineties. Um, you can talk about the um, when Spain closed its open border to North Africa. Um, after it joined the EU, as part of the conditions of joining the EU. Um, and that was the point at which workers from North Africa started taking to boats to come to Europe, uh, and the first bodies washed ashore on, on Spanish um, beaches. And so, it, it, to, to, one, to, to a degree, this is a very long-standing uh, crisis. And um, whatever policies are conjured up this year or next year, will not solve it. And I don't think the key problem lies at the level of policy at all, but rather at the level of attitude and perception. And that's why you know, we need to think much more in the long term. And, and part of the problem is that we say, what is the policy we can impose now, where, when the real issue is that of um, attitude and perception in a much longer term? So I just wanted to go back to... Um in relation to this, what, what you were mentioning before, Rob, because you mentioned a piece of research that suggested that kind of cons the, the connection between the EU and migration um, was much stronger after 2004. Yes. Um, so I guess that suggests, to some extent, perhaps the numbers do matter. So, you know, to what extent is... Um, so we've been saying that uh, attitudes to immigration are much more about perception and, and symbolism, but if they also correlate with these increases in migration then then perhaps there is you know perhaps there is to some extent to bad numbers as well well some aspects of the immigration story um, numbers influence and some numbers don't 
So, for example, if you ask people the question, should there be less immigration than there is now, that has no correlation at all with the numbers that are actually coming. People just always say they want less immigration. They said they wanted less immigration in the mid-80s when we had net-out migration. It's, it's a, in my view, a fairly useless measure for this reason. All it captures is the general public distaste for immigration, which I think captures something that Keenan is talking about a little bit in terms of the insoluble elements of this. One of the insoluble elements of this is that a big section of the public just always start from the position of regarding immigration as a bad thing. That's a huge challenge politically in a world where immigration is a reality. Um, but another question you can ask is, what do you think are the most important problems facing the country right now? And that question does correlate very closely with the overall levels of migration coming to the country. And I, I mean the gross numbers, not the net numbers. The net number that the government has become obsessed with is, in my mind, a totally pointless number to focus on because the number that people react to, how they do this, of course, we don't know, but the number that people seem to react to is the number that are actually coming to the country. So when the number is higher, people notice that somehow and react to it. And post-2004, the numbers coming went up a lot, although they'd already gone up a lot starting in the late 90s. Uh, and people reacted to that by saying immigration was a more urgent problem and needed more political uh, attention. So there does seem to be a feedback loop there. And indeed, I did a piece of research a couple of years ago looking at this all the way back to the 60s. And for a long time before 2004, there was a kind of public opinion policy feedback loop. So you would have various liberal policies um, adopted on immigration, the first being the, um, the British Nationality Act 1946. Uh, numbers would rise, uh, um, the public would become dissatisfied, and the government would respond by restricting immigration, at which point concern or attention to the issue, though not opposition to it, would go down. Uh, that happened uh, in a cycle from the 40s to the 70s. It happened again in the 80s and 90s. Uh, then it broke down after 2004 because then one of the primary drivers of the numbers going up um, became migration from the EU, which at that point the government had no policy tools to, to act upon. Um, so what they started to do uh, is to try and act upon the kinds of migration that weren't actually concerning the public very much, like students in particular, um, and some aspects of the out-of-EU labour market, not very effectually. So the lever broke, in a sense, and as a result, immigration has been named as one of the top three issues facing the country by voters year in, year out, every year, since about 2002, 2003, right through the financial crisis. And now that the crisis has receded, it's now once again number one. Um, and that does seem to be in some way to do with the overall level. It seems that when there's a very high overall level, the public do pay more attention to it. Mm. I, I would go back to, to you know to, to the, the point I was making before that, in a sense, immigration has become symbolic of unacceptable change. Um, and that immigration clearly changes um, communities, societies, but. It's not the, in, in a sense, it's not the, the only um, uh, driver of social change, nor is it the most important driver of social change. But when we come at certain points to think about immigration as the most important driver of change, um, and I think it's more that sense of how we see immigration and what it symbolises that matters more. It, I mean, it, 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 it could be that 
as numbers go up, then it becomes more important as, as symbolic of a, a change that's happening that I don't want. Um, but it does seem to me that, that it is a, you know, if, you, if you look historically at how we've looked at migration, not just in the, in, over, in the post-war period, but right throughout the 20th century, it is that sense that migration has always been, at certain moments, symbolic of um, unacceptable change to our society. So I wanted to um, finish just by um, talking a little bit about this increase in, in racism that we've witnessed since the Brexit vote. And where do you think this is a sign that it's somehow polarised society um, and uh, what role the Brexit campaign might have played in in creating that, if that's the case, and, and, and the small question of how we might uh, overcome it. So, uh, Keenan, perhaps? Um, well, I think the rise in attacks is worrying. Uh, um, so I think we'd, we'd need a, a longer time frame to, to, to assess it properly. But I also think we also think we need to take a, a longer view about what drives such anti-immigrant sentiments in a way that, you know, some of the issues that we've been talking about already. Because it's not the Brexit vote that created anti-immigrant sentiment. It was rather that the Brexit vote was to a degree fueled by anti-immigrant sentiment. Uh, and whether it's created conditions for a flowering of racist attacks uh, and, and, and a kind of a, a, a new growth of, in racist sentiments, I think is still to be established. It's clear that the critics of the EU promoted noxious arguments about immigration from you know, Michael Gove's warnings about a Turkish invasion to Nile to Farage's breaking point poster. But you know, these, these ideas, these sentiments aren't new and we can point the finger as much at Remain politicians as at Leave politicians. It was after all David Cameron who led the campaign against benefit tourists despite the fact that there were very few EU um, uh, uh, such migrants from the EU. It was Theresa May who, who deployed the go home bans. Um, um, something that even Nigel Farage blanched at. It was Gordon Brown who, when he was Prime Minister, Labour leader, revived the phrase British jobs for British workers and claimed this Labour policy. So, uh, yes, it's worrying, but I also think that um, it, it, it's this broader climate, the way we, we talk about immigration, um, and not just the narrow discussion around Brexit, that's important. Yeah, I, I agree very much with Keenan, and, and thanks, Keenan, for reminding me of the, the go-home vans. I'd, I'd forgotten that particularly shoddy episode. God. Um, but, uh, I mean, there's two things I think I'd, I'd say on this. Um, the first is, I mean, I think the normative environment is tremendously important. It's, it's something I'm trying to do work on at present, in fact. I, I think its importance can't be overstated but is often missed and what's, what's happened since Brexit I think illustrates that because I don't think I mean the, the trends in racial attitudes in Britain over the very long run tend to be positive um, the generational shift towards more inclusive attitudes in particular I think is very important um, 
But there's still a lot of people out there who hold pretty um, toxic views on these issues. And, and, and what happened with the Brexit vote is that people who do hold toxic views on this issue interpreted the 52% vote as a majority endorsement of those toxic views. So it emboldened them to express those views in public and in unambiguous terms in a way that we haven't seen, I think, um, for quite a while. Because all of a sudden they felt that actually society was on their side on this. Um, uh, and that, I think, is part of what's driven this this really ugly spike in such incidents. But I also think, like Keenan, that the elite really do matter in this respect. When elite politicians and parties, mainstream parties, frame discussion of groups of people in particular ways, they send a signal to the electorate as a whole that this is an acceptable or a not acceptable way to talk about these things. And the problem has been with politicians like uh, Blunkett, like May, um, uh, like Cameron, basically playing with fire by introducing uh, tropes and symbols into those discussions which they could have fought against, but which instead they chose to deploy themselves. They could have kept the, the sort of boundaries of debate well policed, but they chose not to. And I think that in part is why we have some of the problem with this issue that, that we do now. I hope, perhaps against hope, that going forward... Um, the shock of the Brexit vote will make them realise the need to be more responsible on these issues, to, to, to send a signal to voters that there is a right way to discuss this kind of thing and an absolutely wrong way to discuss these kind of um, very hot-button issues. Um, you know, I hope that's what happens. Whether it is remains to be seen. I was going to say, I think Rod's point about... Um, the long-term shifts in attitudes. It's actually very important here because we are, however much um, uh, the, the, we, we can see recent, recent racist attacks, we're living in a very different Britain to, to the Britain of the 70s and 80s. Now, I grew up uh, in a Britain where racism was visceral. It was kind of, it was um, uh, stitched into the fabric of society. Um, where race attacks, where fire bombings of Asian houses, um, where uh, assaults, even killings, were were not uncommon. Um, fire bombings were almost weekly events in, in, in the 70s. And we've moved a long way from that. And British society is very different. And it's, it, it's precisely because we've moved a long way that... What's happened over the last couple of weeks seems so striking and shocking. You know, 30 years ago, it wouldn't have seemed striking and shocking. The fact that it does shows how much we've moved. And it's, it's not, a, it's not a, uh, to say we should accept what's happened, but, but to recognise that it's against a background of, of a society that's become far less racist and, and has changed enormously over the past 30 or 40 years. To find out more about the work of Rob Ford and Kenan Malik, please visit our website talkimmigration.com. Now on to our next topic. One of the most testing issues in the current refugee crisis is that of the tens of thousands of unaccompanied migrant children who arrive in Europe every year. Nando Sigona has conducted extensive research on their situation and I asked him to start by giving us an overview of recent developments in Europe. 
I think there has been a lot of attention to the situation of unaccompanied minors within Europe uh, in the last few months. Uh, less has been less the case in uh, for um, other migrant children, and I think it would be useful to to look at the flows of uh, minors uh, and then look in more in details in the case of an accompanied one, because it tends to give us a better sense of perspective of what goes in, going on. I'm saying this also because if you look at the age profile of the arrival in um, in Greece and Italy from from last year in particular, but also in the last in the first few months of 2016, you can see that this uh, what we call the refugee crisis is is a a, a crisis of uh, youth because most of the people that travel and comes are under 30, and also if this is also validated if you look at the data from uh, um, the asylum application in EU from last year with over 80 percent being from people under 35, and with uh, a quite significant part being from uh, uh, people under 18. Um, uh, just to give you even more uh, information on this, um, if you look at uh, about over 1 million people that arrived in 2015, uh, about uh, 250,000 were uh, children, so under 18. Under 250,000, so mostly these were young people that came with uh, within a family unit. Um, in the case of the unaccompanied minor, that is the young people that traveled uh, alone or separated from uh, uh, their families, we we recorded about 90,000 applications. The numbers uh, are slightly um, uh, unclear because different European member states collect data on unaccompanied minors differently. Uh, so 90,000, which is already a record number compared to the previous years, where um, more or less on average the European member state received about 30,000 applications. So it's like three times as much. And how come there's... Is, is that... Um just the same reasons as we see it increase generally in migration, or is there a specific reason why there is a spike in unaccompanied children? I think that it partly reflects the, the overall flow. Uh, and as I said, you know, the unaccompanied matters are part of what is the young people migration crisis or refugee crisis, which affect mostly the younger generation, people under 30. And uh, the case of the unaccompanied one is also linked both to condition their country of origin as well as, as uh, the opening up of opportunities for migration, especially during the, the summer and um, fall months of the 2015 in particular. Currently, when you see that, if you see the number, for example, in particular from Greece, but also the arrival in Italy, so there is still another phenomenon happening. That you, you can see that the number of adults has decreased, while there is uh, an increase in the number of uh, the under-18, particularly unaccompanied. This is partly due to the fact that while uh, European member states are applying a more securitarian approach to irregular, irregular crossings in the Mediterranean, this, uh, the minors are, at least in part, uh, Protected in the, you know from um, being bounced back at border or from deportations up to an extent, so not not completely, but in a uh, we, we would argue that uh, for those who are under eighteen is once they arrive into Europe is um, there is a more chances to be allowed to stay in the current time where there is a toughening up of approach towards all the others. And what would a typical journey look like for a minor who's uh, travelling to Europe on his own or her own? It's a, it's a journey that has been um, has been speeding up in the last two years. This is, the, I think, is interesting. If I compare 
the interviews that I carried out in the past uh, with uh, unaccompanied minors, with the more recent work I've been doing uh, together with colleagues in Coventry and Oxford on the project called MedMig, especially for people coming from the um, Aegean route, so from Turkey into Greece. Uh, the speed of the journey has gone uh, has increased significantly and has become shorter. So you could see that basically people living in Afghanistan or Pakistan, where a lot of the Afghani and people lives living camp or Iran, and now it takes less time to get into into Europe. Partly because the um, the infrastructure supporting the journey has has changed. Uh, although in the last few months, what we have seen is again it, it's uh, slowing down again because of Turkey changing the approach after the March deal with the, the European Union. Um, in, it, often the people travel. There, there is traveling groups. There may be groups that have uh, created uh, on the on the road. Let's say to this way, in a sense, people don't necessarily start the journey with the same group of people they they arrive into into Europe. Or with members of family that they are lost along the way. I mean, from from my research, it's clear that uh, the incidents of episode of violence or even death or uh, exploitation along the journeys it's it's extremely high, uh, and so uh, some of these young people may end up in uh, exploitative conditions or even being uh, kidnapped during the journey. This is things that uh, increasingly we hear from people. Um, uh, from people uh, arriving into into Europe, right? And um, where do they um, come from mainly? Are there um, so you're talking about Afghanistan? That seems um, the impression you get is that that's one of the major sending countries. Is 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 that the case? And why is that the case? In, in that case? Yeah, sure. Um, Afghanistan is by far the largest sending country for unaccompanied asylum seeker children, mostly uh, young boys. Uh, in in the last couple of years, what we noticed is that in, for the Afghani young people, uh, they ever their age is getting they are getting a bit older when they come. So they, there is an increasing a growing number of them that are comes around sixteen to seventeen. When in the past you would have a more younger one as well. Uh, there are also other country of origin, and um, in in the, in the last year, for example, uh, young Albanian uh, or Kosovans have been um, have been traveling towards uh, Germany and Sweden in particular, uh, but there is a, and young Eritreans as well. When we look at the data on unaccompanied minors, especially if we look at the statistic on, on uh, unaccompanied asylum-seeking minors, so that is young people that then are applying for asylum on, uh, in their own right, uh, you have a very large majority of, um, of boys, men, young men. I mean, in the case of the Afghanis, over 99%, I, w- I would say. Um, however, there are other groups of unaccompanied minors which don't are not channeled through the asylum system. That uh, in which the, you may have a different kind of representation of also of, uh, of girls. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, of um, if you look at the case of Eritrea, Eritrea or Nigeria, you may have um, young girls that uh, may have been trafficked uh, for various reasons, uh, including sexual exploitation, and then once they arrive into Europe, they uh, they don't apply for asylum, but they get protection on the basis of the fact that they were trafficked. So they don't appear in the statistic uh, on asylum, yeah, on a asylum seeking children. Right, and and how come there is this kind of gender imbalance, and that um, and that the uh, the asylum seekers um, come from these uh, particular countries mainly? 
Um, the, the, there are a number of reasons. One of them is obviously that the maybe cultural or in terms of um, expectation and danger also for young boys, for example, living in Afghanistan in terms of being potential uh, victim of violence um, from or being forced to take part into conflicts uh, or be conscribed to work in the army, for example, in the case of the Eritreans. So you will have um, um, different set of motivation that can start the journey in, in specific cases, but also the fact that the journey is extremely dangerous and in some cases there is a, uh, an, an expectation for the young male to start this journey. It, for some, um, uh, while the, 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 for, for young girls may be easier to stay, in, especially in some uh, for young people from some countries like Afghanistan, you may have a, a, a you will spend more time within the, the boundary of the family have home, which is relatively more protected. I would say. Um, they, as I said, though, that in the case of the Eritreans, but also the Vietnamese, you also have uh, um, young women traveling um, and Nigerians as well. Right. Okay. Um, and you also mentioned there are some. Um some countries that are the main uh, hosting countries, so Sweden and Germany, and um, what what's the reason behind that? Okay, in, in 2015, when uh, the 90,000 uh, children arrived into Europe, uh, Sweden was by far the largest receiver with over 30,000 uh, applications. It's interesting, basically Sweden in 2015 alone received more than the totality of an accompanied assumption children of, uh, of Europe in 2014. This obviously has created a situation of strain also in terms of the resources and support that are available. Sweden in many ways does a good job in um, taking care of the best interests of the child and provide uh, a, a good level of support, especially a good level compared to other European member states. Uh, what happens though when the young people turn 18, then it, it basically there is an area of vulnerability and a number of young people will uh, disappear from, from the radar, uh, they will go under the radar. Uh, Germany as well have seen in 2015 a regular number of arrival um, uh, over I think around 14,000 which is a very significant increase from the previous years but also Italy received over 4,000 and, and also Hungary although in the case of Hungary is more the case of uh, young people that basically got stuck in Hungary uh, hoping to reach other destinations but when Hungary basically sealed the border they, they end up uh, there and were unable to, to move further um, part of the reason so is, is the, the level of protection that is guarant guaranteed, uh, partly is the opportunity in terms of access to the job market once they are no longer minors. So I guess this is, I think, the case in particular for Germany, for example. And, and then there is the issues of the social network, family attachment, and uh, basically the fact of, of being able to rely on uh, people that have already done the journey to start up a new, a new life. Um, in, in, there is also some cases that are more specific to specific countries. So, for example, in Italy, you have a, a, the largest num number of, uh, of unaccompanied uh, minors uh, is from Egypt. Uh, and these young Egyptians don't travel further, so they tend to stay in Italy. But they also tend to disappear from the, the protection system. So they don't, go, they don't want to be uh, treated as, uh, as uh, children, in a sense, and being... Uh, um, and be hosted in, in state-owned uh, centers. But they basically, the migration project is much more about connect to family that, and members or friends that already work in Italy and try to, to be able to remit money back to their families as soon as possible.
without going too far away from from uh, from Egypt. And you mentioned um, uh, well uh, earlier that when they turn eighteen, they tend to um, to sort of disappear. And does that happen before they turn eighteen as well? And then um, what, what what's actually going on there? Uh, the issue of the missing and accompanied minors has, has been uh, very much at the center of uh, attention within uh, the European Union the last few months, in particular after the intervention of Europol and the opening up of the center for tracing the tracking down the missing. Uh, and you know the number of ten thousand missing uh, children has been uh, appearing, uh, pop up in different places and used for different purposes. Um, what's uh, uh, in my research? Um, I think I, I, I notices that I point out is it's that uh, this number I think is um, an overestimation, partly due to double counting, uh, because young people that disappear from one country may reappear in another, but they're still counted as missing within this sort of a col, uh, collated statistic that are produced at European level. Uh, I think there is at least two different reasons that one can. Um, for which a, a, an unaccompanied minor may disappear. One is, in a sense, at the end of childhood. So when uh, when they turn 18, they no longer have the same level of entitlement and protection they were uh, awarded before, in which case is to avoid mostly being deported, that they prefer rather, they rather prefer to go um, to go missing and become basically start to live as an undocumented yeah, migrant or to move to a different uh, EU member state. Uh, the second main reason uh, is more linked to the arrival. So, for example, in, this is true in the case of Italy, where I think in 2015 it was about 5,000 and it were not long. They were registered at arrival, but they were no longer was. And this is mostly the case of young people that have a destination in mind that they want to reach. So they want to uh, join their friends or family or brothers or sisters in, in Germany and Sweden. So they, they would rather prefer not being stuck in Italy and then move on. So they, they, they prefer in the case to uh, leave the, um, after a few days, leave the country and, and move to the next destination. So there are different reasons that may cause the disappearance. There is also the issues of... Uh, exploitation and trafficking but it's it, i think uh, I, I think you can arguably say uh, arguably say that it's only affect a, a smaller part in this big number mm. and just lastly um there's been um well in sweden uh, i know um, and probably elsewhere as well debate about the age of um unaccompanied asylum um mm. seekers uh, and uh, there's been various methods used to try to to examine their age. So, mm-hmm. could you just say something about, you know, what kind of, uh, what's the variation here between different countries, and how reliable mm-hmm. are these sorts of um, examinations? Uh, the age assessment is a controversial issue in in many EU member states, and the way that the method used varies uh, very considerably. They go from uh, X-ray to wrist and teeth to uh, psychological assessment uh, from sort of a specialist in uh, in uh, or a pediatrician to uh, the assessment done by a social worker or a, a, or simply signposting by a teacher that then goes to a social worker that then uh, asks for an assessment. One aspect that I think is important to to bear in mind is that the age assessment is not only done 
uh, at the point of entry. So it's not only done sometimes, not even in all cases, when someone um, arrives in a, in a country and is basically met by the authorities, but it can be done triggered at any stage. And this creates a huge anxiety for the young people. So imagine you, you, know, you are accepted as a 15 years old, you go to school, at some point uh, the, the social worker that is attached to the school thinks that now you are actually not behaving like a 15 years old. So suddenly your, your age is questioned, your own identity is questioned. Uh, you go for a process that may take also a few weeks, if not months, of uh, ascertaining what age are you. And then you may be moved to a different kind of uh, old set of uh, um, arrangements. So in a sense, if you, if, uh, if you are 15, you're likely to have a foster parents. But if you are then assessed to be 18 or say even 17, you may lose your foster parents because then older, older, older children are put in different uh, arrangements or accommodation-wise, for example. To find out more about all our guests and to listen to previous episodes, please visit our website, talkingmigration.com. And that was all for this time. Thank you for listening.